0: Matthew, what was your first film job?
1: Film job. Uh, that's a good question. So I jumped into it pretty boldly, I guess, because I studied it at Syracuse, screenwriting and film production, etc. But you, re- you learn theory. you don't really learn the basics of how to do it as far as like you know onset experience. So I was bold enough to just say I wanted to write a screenplay and make it and direct it and it was kinda like I just jumped in and I wanted to be at that place without kind of working as a PA at first or working as a uh, a grip or anything. It was I, I came in through actually music because music was my, what do they call that, double major I guess. And I was composing music for commercials when I first got out of school. So I had like this weird entry and the music was what inspired me to eventually write a script and then I made that film um I directed it I raised the money I co-wrote it with a friend of mine from Syracuse and we just did it and it was this crazy ride and I'm glad we did because you know it was a story that was really close to us and we really wanted to make sure we told it And the only way to really tell a story the right way when you feel near and dear to it to me is to direct it yourself. And even though we had an uphill battle with the first time director thing and cast not coming on board and just people kind of like you guys are in your mid-twenties, what are you doing? We all felt like this was the right way and I think the baptism by fire of being on set and really learning. and. You know, it was my first time on a film set, so it was very difficult to, you know, walk that tightrope of being, you know, immersed with the crew for the first time, as well as the talent, and just trying to like figure that out.
0: And this was a narrative.
1: It was, yeah. It was a film called Everything's Jake that um, starred Ernie Hudson, who was kind enough to star in it because you know he didn't know us from Adam, and. He sat us down at a lunch out here, I remember. We flew out because he responded to the script and he's like, You guys sure you want to do this? It was kinda <laughs> like this, you know, is this possible? Like, you have the money and we're like, No, not yet, but we'll raise it, don't worry. And you know, we were just kinda hustlers at the time. And he started calling friends of his like Debbie Allen and Robin Givens to take part in it. And we made the movie. And, you know, we were on the streets of New York in the dead of winter for four weeks. But it was about a homeless guy in New York so the sets were built so it wasn't like we had to like, do anything or expense that. So we were able to do it all outside and it just really worked out. And the great ending to that was that we made the film, no one wanted it as with a lot of indie films I'm sure. Because thousands of films are made and I, you know, only a select hundred or what, five or six hundred get to the theaters every year I think. So this film was like, you know, something we really wanted to get out there but no one was biting. Eventually Ernie did this radio show with Whoopi Goldberg and I said, did you ever see the film? Because she was saying, oh, uh, you know, everything's Jake. And she goes, no, you know, I only watched the trailer. I said, well, watch the film. I gave her a DVD. I said, you know, it's a really special film, blah, blah, blah. Two weeks later, she brought Ernie on The View and then Warner Brothers eventually took the film out. Um, Not in theaters, but it was like this uh, DVD play that they did and it got out there enough. And it got us to our next film, but we didn't want to give up on it. It's easy to kind of like say that film didn't work; we'll shelve it. But that was something we wanted to like continue with.
0: That's a great story. What was the time frame between yeah. *The View* sort of airing, <laughs> and and the the finish? Well, that's
1: the the worst part of it, which was we finished it in '99, and I think it didn't get a deal till like eight years later. Wow. But I didn't want to do another film until like that made it. And I I didn't want to just, you know, say, okay, well, let's give up on it in a sense. I mean, I was able to do other jobs in between and Mm -hmm. just trying to figure out this business and to navigate it, which is, there's no real rhyme or reason to it. It's kind of like you can come in a lot of different ways. And I'm sure you've heard that from several people. Everyone has a different experience. But, uh, you know, and I don't think you ever really arrive. It's kind of you just keep making your way. And I feel like that's kind of where I am right now.
0: When did you decide on documentary filmmaking? So your, your first film is a narrative mm-hmm. or did it sort of not really, there wasn't a decision, you, an interest sparked for something? So
1: my thinking behind it was, so I did a second narrative called Eavesdrop and then that had a very hard time getting out there too. So I was very discouraged because I was trying to figure out, well, how am I gonna tell the stories I wanna tell? And then you have this, huge mountain to climb with raising money, and the cast, and you have a very small amount of time to get it right with a feature, because it's only like a four or five week onset experience, and they're such long days, and I really was discouraged with the process of storytelling and the feature narrative. However, from those two directing gigs, I got noticed for some writing, because I had written the scripts. So I came out here, and I was doing some writing, and I got a manager, and I was working with an agency. And I started working with a couple of high profile directors on different scripts and I was helping to do a couple of things. But ultimately I got discouraged because with that you sometimes are in turn around a lot of things. You don't get credited if you work on something and you know you're in that development thing. And sometimes your work doesn't really pay off because you can be working on something for so long it never gets made. So then I had this frustration point where I was like I just want to tell my stories. Like, How can I do this a lot easier in a sense? Um, and I'm a New Yorker in my heart. And I, as a child, used to come into the city and see the windows at Bergdorf Goodman and a variety of different storefronts. And I remembered that as a kid, and I used to look up at these windows and say, wow, that's like my first approach and first encounter was storytelling and like a three-act structure you could see within just one window. And I just absorbed that. And then I said to myself, you know what? I'd love to do a film on Bergdorf's because that was my first encounter with this window or windows. I approached them and they said, We don't allow filming, and to do a whole feature would be crazy because you'd have to buy the store out and film, and it's multi, multi millions to even think about it. But then I said, Well, let me look at your archive, let me do a little more research on the place. And when they showed me their archive, it was so thin, and I was like, Well, you know you don't keep a formal archive like you know I'm surprised it's not huge it's a hundred years old and they said no. I said well let's do a project together let's you know I'll beef I'll beef up your archive with interviews and you know we'll figure it out together and I said let's do a documentary and they said okay so for the next two years we were rolling camera and you know you can green light your project like that without all the money you need you know, to get it done. And also there's this protracted period where you can work on something for a longer period of time at your own pace and you don't have to have that really concentrated thing. And then at that moment, and it was in like 2011 when I started to think about that, and that's when docs started to really get hot and have like this golden period, which I still think we're going through. And I feel like storytelling in a doc form is a really refreshing approach if you really want to get your thing or film made and out there because you can literally you know for a thousand two thousand bucks have a camera start rolling and green light your own project it's really about picking the right topic getting the people in it that you want to interview or highlight and just make a compelling story and if you stitch that all together successfully you can get something out there in a theatrical way just as much as a feature narrative is these days. I mean, my last four docs all went to theaters, so I feel like, uh, and they were rated, and it's like, you know, you feel like you're doing it and in it, but it was a byproduct and a result of my frustration with the feature side. So I'm kind of like in the doc world right now, and I've done about four, and I'm about to do two more that are already shot, but I'm entering back into the feature world now because I got attached to direct this film on Norman Rockwell, it's a biopic on that iconic artist. So I'm really excited about that, so I'm kind of like entering back in. But I feel better now because I've accomplished what I needed to in the doc world and I feel like with that experience I'll bring more to my directing prowess when I get on set and do that next thing.
0: What mistakes would you say you made early on with filmmaking, whether it was with equipment, you know, timing, whatever?
1: Uh, the biggest mistake I ever made and it was a, an inadvertent one, when I first was on set as a director I didn't spend time with the crew and the reason I didn't was because I didn't want them to suspect and find out that I didn't know much and I was inexperienced and I was doing this like total fish out of water like I had no clue except for what I learned in school which but, in school you do little videos and you're not really directing a full on feature. So when the crew would have lunch, I was always trying to separate myself because I didn't want to like let on that, like like, oh, what have you worked on before? Or, you know, anything, question like that, I had no idea how to answer it. But they saw it as, or at least my thinking, I have no idea, I never asked them. But I always felt like they were a little like standoffish because they're like, oh, he doesn't want to eat with us, or you know, he wants to spend time alone. And I always felt like that was it was the wrong impression I made, obviously. But again, it was in, inadvertent because I was trying to like protect myself from their, you know, uh, more investigative questions, maybe about like if I had any background in this, which I didn't. So I would always say, and I still today would say, you know, if you're on set and you're directing, you should spend time with your crew because it's a true collaboration, and without all those voices coming in and helping you to immerse yourselves in the story, you can't think it's this, like, you know, I'm the only voice in this, I'm the only storyteller. It's a variety of people who are going to help you along the way, and they all have their own voice and creativity they're bringing to it. So it's that mutual respect across the board that I think is super important to make sure that you know I always keep in the back of my mind and I know on my next film I'll always you know really engage more but it's so easy to get in your own head and to kinda you know just think and brood and you know try to figure out how you're gonna do a scene and you feel like you're in it alone sometimes because the producers are only going to you when you're losing light and you're not making your day but I feel now that I need to be a little more uh, involved with how the crew is feeling and, you know, have lunch with them and bring the actors in on those conversations and everyone in it together rather than, you know, I think a, a rookie director's mistake is to think you're in it alone and that it's you against the world in a sense and you kind of feel like if this doesn't go, I fail, which is true because it's your name on it, and you're not. If you don't make your day and you go over budget, you could get fired or whatnot. But I, I do think the voices on the crew are super important to keep engaging and to involve at an equal level as far as their creativity. So
0: that's an interesting take on perception. So, at what point did it click for you that that could have been one of the issues, and then you sort of I didn't. I never cured it.
1: You never. Oh. <laughs> Okay. I, just, just, I I, was just that way on that, that first set mm-hmm. um, and I tried to help it on the second set, but I'm a victim of my own like, thoughts when I get really intense about how I'm going to structure a scene or I get, you know, because I don't ever plan much. I always try to make decisions on the day of and I always try to react to what I'm given because things change all the time. If you plan too much, you're in for a rude awakening because you get to a location and things always change. So I always try to wait until I'm there. And then when I'm there, I make decisions off the cuff or a little more um, you know, in a, a way that's keeping it fresh. And then I involve the actors in those decisions and the DP, et cetera. But I would probably try to be a little more democratic in how I am reacting to things and my approach. Because I don't have a shot list, generally. And I don't have you know, a lot of dialogue on how I'm doing certain things. So I want to make sure next time I communicate a little better. But as I said, it's easy to get into your own head with these things.
0: What can you tell us about the history of the Carlisle?
1: The Carlisle, so the history goes back to about 1930. And it was built right on the tail end of the 20s. And that whole boom and the roaring 20s and the good times in New York. And the real estate, you know, um, values totally going through the roof. And obviously it ended in a crash. But the conception of the Carlisle and the whole notion of it was born during that era. So as it was being built, things were falling apart economically. So there was this whole decision made by Moses Ginsburg at the time who built it. Should we continue? Should we build it? And the decision was yes, because they had already broken ground. But then they ended, up, they ended up losing it several months into their mortgage and you know, they, they lost it right after they built it within a year. So, and I think New York was in a real crisis then. I mean, the Empire State Building was erected at the same time and it was called the Empty State Building for a decade because no one was leasing office space. So New York was in the throes of something quite unique and status properties like the Carlisle, I think, suffered during that time. But eventually in the 40s and in the 50s and then certainly in the 60s with JFK coming in there and really making it a signature, as far as, uh, you know, staying there and, you know, Truman stayed there but JFK had the sexiness and the glamour of Jackie O and they were a bit younger and they had Camelot and that whole thing was being born not only in Washington but at the Carlisle as well. So that really made it this place that had this legendary status and this mythic quality. So I was always intrigued by that and, you know, I love old New York and I think the Carlisle just represents all those different decades and the flavors that you get in in all those years. And I mean, today it's a lot different, but it's holding on to certain aspects of it. And a lot of the staff were telling me about this place has a patina, about it, there's a vintage quality to it. And I was trying to get to that essence and the heart of it with the film. And I think I got in a little bit, a little patch here and there, but ultimately it was a tough thing to mine because They also pride themselves on discretion, so you have to kind of figure that out as well.
0: Sure, but I like how you also interwove stories of the staff and what they could tell, and I thought it was interesting. uh, Forgive me, the one gentleman's name, and he was the the man who retired, who was there. Um, Dwight. I think so, right? And he talked about how it was such a different experience working there years ago, and how the world had changed, and his position there now didn't feel the same. And I thought that was an interesting take on how things change over time, you know, uh, etiquette changes, obviously. Yeah, it's and true, it's sad, Absolutely. actually. It, it is, it and, and when
1: he said it, I was, I felt it when he said mm-hmm. it, and I knew that, like, sometimes you hear when a line is said or spoken that you want to make sure you get it in the film and you remember it when it comes time to the edit. And when he said that, like, things have changed and used to go to a ball game and people were dressed and you would go out on the sidewalk and people dressed a certain way and they had respect for themselves. And I'm not saying that's fallen off, but in New York there's definitely a relaxed quality happening that I think is reflective of a lot of other areas. And I think it comes from a practical point of view, like we don't have to wear fedoras and suits and ties so much anymore, but I think it's gotten a little too relaxed. So a place like the Carlisle and you see flip-flops coming in or you see you know people in shorts are not respecting the fact that a sport jacket is needed in a certain place. That whole culture and that etiquette and the values there I think they're all falling off if not disappearing altogether. And I think that's what Dwight was bemoaning and you know he was a concierge there for years Mm -hmm. and he he didn't say that Carlisle changed as much as society was changing, right. so he didn't want to be in that position anymore to see it and witness it keep falling off because it has. Now whether or not there'll be a renaissance, I have no idea. Will we get back to a place where there's like a certain decorum again? I don't know, but if the Carlisle story and getting it out to audiences makes an impact there, makes any dent whatsoever, like people want to get dressed up again, and. Have a martini. I mean, you can it's not stuffiness. People might misconstrue it with, oh, I have to get dressed up for that, or there's a certain social, the social grace that you need when you walk in a place like that. I want them to feel that. I want them to do that, but when you're there, the experience is pretty bawdy. It's like a fun time, it's like a rare thing you've really never experienced before because even in the cafe there's like this cabaret that happens which is a very unique thing and I think people confuse it with just oh someone's singing songs but it's not. It's the stories in between. There's you know a lot of bodiness that happens in cabaret and it's uptown so it's not like a downtown feel it's this uptown place in a stuffy neighborhood Upper East Side but the Carlisle is so singular and it's such a rare experience and I feel like the film kind of hints at that.
0: How did you arrange all of the interviews? I know you had interviews with, you know, mm-hmm. Lenny Kravitz and, you know, George Clooney.
1: Well, it took like 4 years to do this film, and the reason it took so long was because we were waiting for them to come to the hotel. It's not like we put a letter out and said, "Hey, will you do this?" It was more about, "When are they coming? Can we talk to them while they're here?" And then it was like the approach as well because you can't just go over to them in the lobby and be like, hey, do you mind doing this? So it was a process that we did with the Carlisle because they have a certain way they like to engage a guest and I didn't want to step on that. So sometimes we would send a personal letter from myself to the room just saying, hey, we're doing this. But no one was responding and year one of this was a total shutout. It was like, okay, I don't know what I'm going to get because no one's saying yes. But Finally, George Clooney said yes because I don't know if there's a familiarity there. I had seen him on occasion. I was introduced to him a couple times. And then finally, through his publicist, someone said, his publicist, someone said, um, yes, he's willing to do this because he loves the hotel. And it was, you know, he does endorsements for different things, but this was something he wanted to do because he loves the place. And he goes back to the Rosemary Clooney days when he used to drive her around in the 80s and he just had this feel for the place that I felt like was great for the film because he goes back further than I do with it. I go back to the 90s with it but he was back in the mid-80s when Bobby Short was really at his height and then when he said yes it starts to steamroll with oh he did it so maybe I'll do it and then we really started rolling with the cast as you've seen with I saw Wes Anderson duck his head in Bembleman's one time and I asked the Carlisle, does he come here, does he stay here, and they said, I don't know if he stays, but he definitely has come here before. So we asked him really innocently through his people, and he said, absolutely, so he sat for us. Sofia Coppola was shooting something there at the time, and we asked her, she was more than willing. Everyone was really gracious about it, but I knew at the end of the day that the celebrities were great and they were fun, and that might be the commercial viability to get it out there on a bigger level, but the staff were the heart, And I wanted to make sure that they were the real stars of the film and to push them out a bit, like Danny the Bellman and Dwight the Concierge and Ernesto um, the Doorman. I knew that, and the elevator operators, all those guys and, and the men and women who were behind the scenes, I felt like I wanted to get them out in the spotlight a little bit. And even though some were reluctant... By year three or four they were like, I'll tell you this story, now I'll tell you this one. Because they knew I wasn't doing a fly-by-night production and I had the ability through other projects to support myself and to like let this kind of be the one that just I did when things were available to me Um, because there was really no rush with it. It's not going to go anywhere and I knew I wanted to get the flavor of it and that only can happen when you have time with it. So any kind of like short attention span to the hotel, you're not going to understand the place, wow. but now I do.
0: I thought you had a great balance between sort of the heart of it and going into the kitchen and seeing the waiters kind of scramble around but then, you know, letting them tell their story so yeah. so much of the time it's just people see the uniform and they don't really see the person behind it. Yeah. Um, and I love the story of the, the elevator operator that I guess he did a play with Bruce Willis. I mean that that's powerful right there. Right, right? yeah,
1: because you see the different paths these two take. So right. Bruce was even like the lowest part of the cast of the play, I believe. Right. And the elevator operator was the lead. He was, yes. And then he said. ends up being an elevator operator and Bruce's big star. It's just the randomness of where life takes you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like all those small little stories, the nuances inherent in each, were enough. Like a lot of. Uh, People are saying, well, where's the scandal or, you know, where's the true information we want to learn? I feel like I gave enough to let your imagination go and kind of assume more about what's right past that, what they said, like they gave us just enough. And I feel like that was the tease that I got while I was doing the film. It was a constant tease, like, "Oh, that's great information. I wonder what happened next kind of thing. Like, this person got here. Like the royals when they arrived. Mm-hmm. They gave us an exclusive moment in the lobby with them, but they wouldn't let us go up to the room or, you know, spend time with them. But again, it's like, what are you going to learn from that? That the excitement was the arrival and the flash bulbs going off. And then this moment in the lobby when they're greeting the staff, and he says, you know, my mother stayed here, which is why I'm here. And the fact that it was his first time in new york was nuts because you figure you know a prince is traveling the world but that was his first visit to the city
0: and the part you said uh... Or, or someone was talking about how steve jobs michael jackson and princess diana all rode up in the elevator together so you do you get that glimpse of like wow what happens sort of at the top exactly and, and it's it's almost like you almost you, you like that feeling of being kept back a little bit because yeah. it makes it exciting
1: it does and that's what that's a perfect example of you want to imagine what was said in the elevator. and then. But I did learn it was silent. I mean, no one spoke to each other, and that's common in an elevator, but you get those icons in one spot, and it's like there's no dialogue that takes place. But I kind of get it, because it's like you're kind of just... It's, it's, that's the Carlisle experience where you're beside titans of industries and influential people and leaders in all walks of life and you just let it go you just let it kind of glide by because to make any kind of attention or spotlight on it is not the Carlisle way so that's why I was so nervous doing this film because I'm putting a spotlight on things I'm actually like you know putting a camera on things but they were good sports about it I must say and uh, it took a while to convince them but they eventually said yes
0: How did you know when to stop? With gathering all the interviews? Because you could have, I mean, you know, it, you could have gone on for years getting, getting more. You can.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of knew because I wanted to hit a moment where we were editing as we went. And I knew, because we were still gathering interviews up until I think two months ago. and Oh, wow. Yeah, because digitally now you can just insert something, you know, at the last minute. But I felt like we had the story with the through line of the Royals. I feel like we had a really strong story with Lenny Kravitz and Bobby Short. Um, I wanted to make sure I had really a, the the milestones present in the film as much as the pillars that made the Carlisle what it is. And I felt like I got that. And once I had like the Jackie O stuff, the Princess Diana stuff, the Royals, Bobby Short, Bemelmans. Once I had those properly told, and the interviews were strong enough. Then I knew, like, and everything else was just flavor and fill-in. So I felt like by year four that was enough.
0: <laughs> Matthew, on your IMDb, you're listed as a writer on all of your films, not just the narratives, the documentaries as well. So why do you get writing credit? I mean, how much of your filmmaking is actually written out and planned in terms of the documentary?
1: Um, yeah. So the writing is more about how it all pieces together because um, I do 45 minute to an hour interviews with everyone or I hope to and then when you're choosing the lines that you're gonna use with the people this that whole puzzle that you're putting together and the story you're telling with all the different pieces that are coming together I mean you can create a story from a series of interviews that the people who are contributing the line didn't think they were gonna be part of but it all becomes a totally different thing when you're in the editing room so I always feel like script wise uh, at the end of or toward the end of the film I always write it out as far as where everything landed and then you have a real script on how this whole thing transpired so I feel like I take a writing credit on those things because it's a true writing exercise and a true you know figuring out of how you're gonna put it together Um, because the story is not something that is easily Told, especially when you have 100, 100 or 150 interviews, you're literally like, okay, how am I pulling this all together? How am I weaving this? So it's not just each individual story, it's transitioning to. And Steven Soderbergh, who I interviewed one time, he said filmmaking to him, is the most important thing is transition. And he says, you know, when you're filming a scene, how you're getting to the next scene is the key. And he's always looking for that. And I learned that when you do a documentary, too, the line that you need going to the next part, you're not thinking about it in the interview, but you're thinking about it in the editing room. So you need all those moments of departure or you know, getting you to the next place. And I feel like that's the real writing challenge is, okay, we just told that great thing about Bobby Short, but how are we getting it back to the present day? Or, you know, we talked about um, Bemelman's Bar, and we're immersed in this bar right now, but how are we going back up to the Royal Suite to talk about that? So it's like really figuring out the uh, departure points. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know if a lot of documentarians take writing credits, but I like to because it's, uh, I feel like, you know, three quarters of my time is writing it out and saying, okay, all these people have these lines, how am I gonna, you know, Take it to the next level, in a sense, and get to that 90-minute mark of here's the story, and this is how it was told with these people, these lines, etc. So I feel like the writing is uh, is valid at that point.
0: When you began shooting, did the film then take a a, a different ending? You know, I, I've heard from other documentary filmmakers that you know they they set out with one story and then something happened in the course. Of, of the filming in that sort of environment that drastically changed the end of the movie. Did anything happen like that?
1: Yeah uh, we had several endings always on different films um, you never know where it's going to end up and I feel like that's the fun of it too it's the same approach I take when I go to a narrative film set I never plan and it's much to the uh, distress of crew because they want to know and they want to like structure things and you know, editorially it's tough because you're working with editors on a doc and they're like where are we headed with it, what's the three arc or three act structure? And I don't know, I mean I, I, I like to do things kind of off the cuff in an interview as much as I like to do it in the editing room. So I think this film went through at least 50 or 75 cuts of like what is the ending? Because you know you can end it on the Royals actually arriving or leaving, you can end it on you know some of the like Bobby Short passing away. But it's also like, do you want to end on a down note or an upbeat note, do you want to end on an emotional note, a laugh, something about the legacy or the history or about the future. So it was all those things kind of wrestling you know, together to figure out what's going to happen with this film. And again, I love not knowing. I like very much, oh we just had that great interview, let's insert this line here, but then that line here makes all these things change it pushes everything down so you don't like is that our ending or are we moving that up to the top and I, I my, my thing is if you have a great story that you know you're telling uh, like the Carlisle it's a very fluid thing so you can place things anywhere and as long as each individual piece of it is compelling I mean you can really have it anywhere it's not because the audience is going to react differently to everything so an ending to certain audience members is a beginning to others in a sense. You know what I'm saying? It's uh, it's really not like writing a feature script where you have to have that strict or a little more strict, you know, guiding principle of what's first, what's second, what's third, as far as the three act. But the documentary I feel like there's a randomness to it. And it worked, I think, for this one and the past ones I've done.
0: I think you said earlier the documentaries are kind of this is their their time right now. Why do you think now so
1: I think uh, because the, with the streaming that's happening they're able to get out there to a bigger audience and there's also this notion of a doc series that's been popping up and very popular now where you can tell longer form things that they stretch or like HBO's doing things that stretch over a few nights. Um, I know Netflix and other streamers are doing things they're calling doc series where it's like four to six episodes of certain subjects. But I do think that reality these days is somewhat more interesting than what fiction can even dream up. I mean, there's so many cool things happening in the world that you kind of have to put a magnifying glass on it and really examine it. And to me, we're living in such an amazing time where there's all these compelling things every day. And you know, there's, there's a certain thing that you don't want to really chase a headline because it'll be irrelevant tomorrow. But if you look at certain things that are hit upon sometimes, like the Carlisle Hotel, where you continue to see stories happen there, you continue to see history unfold. Those are the kind of things you want to grasp onto. So, you, to me, they're not only relevant for historical reasons, but they're constantly current. So that's why I feel like a film like this, something, something will happen with the streamers and how accessible it will be to everyone eventually. Besides. The pockets that the theaters are appealing to, audience-wise, because I just feel like you know it's always going to be in the news in a sense. There's always going to be something that occurs there, and that's just the magic of the place. So that's why I feel like a film like this will appeal and be popular. Similar with Bergdorf's that happened. I think there's a this this fashion uh, hunger out there. People just can't get enough of it. And when that film came out in 2013, I think it was at the height. I feel like it's fallen off a little bit but um, and people are kind of getting over saturated with it. But I don't know, docs to me, I mean I, they're selling so I know there's a marketplace for them and they're selling at a decent enough level where you can continue making them. And I think that's exciting for any filmmaker to continue just telling your story and to, you know if you have bidders on your content you can't be in a better spot because you continue to do what you do so I feel like… Uh, that golden period is, uh, you know, you, don't, you never know. You can't really like, recognize it when it's happening. But I think when we look back on this decade, I would say from 2010 to probably 2020, we'll be like, wow, that was an amazing moment where we were telling amazing stories.
0: Plus, we came out of a recession, or supposedly we've come out of one during that time. And yeah. so it's a relatively inexpensive way to get a film made if you're doing it in piecemeal.
1: It definitely is and you know what's so interesting about the recession is so the big short comes out and it kind of examines what happened there and I love filmmaking like that too. It's like the biopics and the studies, the journalistic studies of things like All the President's Men and Spotlight like those to me are if you do them right they feel like a documentary almost so I feel like we're in that mode of storytelling right now more than ever where even Hollywood is on to the notion of let's tell real stories. Let's tell what, what's happening. But the balance is of course that you're in the Marvel world, You know, like there's, there's a, I feel like the indie scene and the ones that are the more renegade pictures are the ones telling those real stories. But they're balanced well with this whole Marvel universe and Star Wars where it's this imaginative fiction and sci-fi, etc. where we're really getting a great blend. And I feel like you know, as I said when we look back on it we'll be like wow that was a really great moment. A lot of people bemoan the 70s are over and that storytelling is not happening anymore or you know, they, I think it was 66 to 76 people look at and um, the 80s had all those comedies, right? But I don't know, I feel like right now we're having a really great moment and uh, we'll look back on it and say, wow, that was that was terrific to be a part of.
0: So we have some viewer questions that have come in, one of which is from Matilda David and by the way, hi Matilda, thanks for asking. Um, in a documentary, how do you balance between a list of info, conversations, etc., you want shot, and opportunistic events going on in real time? How important is it to you to make your documentary cinematic slash visually appealing?
1: I think I'm always looking at a theatrical release on these things. I think documentaries can sometimes be shot for a streamer or television, I think PBS is a great home for docs, HBO obviously, but we're always concentrating on, because our last four docs have gone theatrical, so we're always looking at a bigger uh, presentation and a bigger scope. So I'm always looking for that visual appeal, I think our interviews should look really gorgeous and I feel like, you know, you want to have really lush backgrounds, you want to have things, Carlisle was easy because we were shooting in suites were in Bemelmans, or we had such great backgrounds and you know obviously if you put a movie star in front of that background you're having even more lush visuals Um, but that is easy to get so seduced by and like you know you can lay on a shot and lay on someone saying it but is he really giving or she giving you the information that you need to educate the audience on why you're telling the story in the first place so there's a lot of pitfalls there there's a lot of easy traps like with Bergdorf's too, it's like you put a fashion designer in Bergdorf's and they spend millions of dollars on the backgrounds of those department stores to seduce the buyer. So when you put it on camera, you're getting that same can- the visual candy. And I look at it in the editing room and I'm like, God, I really love how that looks, but is that really what the story is about? So it's really uh, a tricky dance. And she's correct in the fact that you have to really, you know, walk that tightrope of figuring out what's staying and what's going and sometimes it's a combination where you have to kind of serve both Um, and that's that's what happened with the Carlisle where it was so beautiful sometimes to look at but we had to make sure we're not only entertaining but informing and I think that's the key. A A lot of documentaries and documentarians inform without the entertainment aspect. I feel like if you're telling a story that's supposed to be out there as far as we're munching on popcorn while we're watching it and paying a ticket price, I think you're gonna want more than just something as fact. You want something as fun too. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm wrong in that. I feel like, but I don't feel like it's so serious journalistically if you're releasing it in a theater. It should be a combination to me because Uh, you know when you go to the theater you're not necessarily looking to get so immersed in something so hard-hitting I think there's another place for that 60 Minutes, New York Times, wherever but if you're releasing a story theatrically you better have both I think.
0: We had beautiful b-roll as well. Yeah. So I like you know, the $50 <laughs> orange juice. <laughs> well, exactly, a great, yeah. It was a beautiful b-roll shot. So <laughs> um, last question here, and then we'll we'll wrap up. Uh, the question came in from the viewer uh, Bisong Taiwo, and forgive me, uh, Bisong if I'm saying your name incorrectly. Hello, by the way. Um, is it a good idea to skip the film festival circuit and go directly to online distributors slash airlines to sell distribution rights?
1: Uh, so film festivals for my Uh, own personal view on it. If you don't have distribution a film festival is a good place to go to try to get it. Especially a high-end film festival I think there's only a certain tier that distributors actually attend in order to get your work out there and I think the obvious ones are Toronto Sundance, you know, etc. There's probably five or six in the world that matter. Other film festivals, because they're a dime a dozen in a lot of cities, they don't. You will go spend some money to get in them, actually travel to go to speak at them, or you know the hotel expense, etc., but you're not going to sell your film because the distributor won't be there to see it. They really only, there's only like 20 distributors really that are out there that matter um, that can actually get your work to a place where you get it to the right audience and they're only going to certain festivals. So to me, if I already have distribution, I usually won't bother with a festival unless it's, unless it's a true marketing play where you're hitting Toronto or Sundance or something where you're you know, getting some buzz off of it. But as far as getting a distributor, if it's not at a top tier, I wouldn't bother applying. That might be a slam on festivals in general. I'm not saying that. It's always fun to get festivals populated with great content but if your purpose is to sell it, you have to be really picky on where you debut because a lot of festivals want you to premiere in just one or theirs. So you know, I think even the Hamptons I sold the film in one time, but it's tricky because you have to choose the right ones and there's only, like I would say, seven that matter.